We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. From a 10,000-foot view, right, we've got the fall, we've got the intervention, and then we've got a sermon. There's a certain strangeness to how almost how complete this story is without having a ton of plot. Preach. Preach it. (laughs) (laughs) Grace by James Joyce from his Dubliners collection. Our penultimate uh, recording we have as we move through the entire Dubliners collection. That hurts my heart in so many ways you don't know. I never knew the exact order we'd go through them. But I did know that that the last two, Grace and the the Ivy Day, I I knew I'd be saving those for last. Uh, I'll be curious if you know why. But all right, so uh, let's 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 just walk through this one. Uh, usually we kind of do plot breakdown analysis. This one I thought might make sense just to kind of talk through as as we move through the story. Agreed. But the opening, you know, especially for a Dubliners, it's pretty grotesque, right? We, we've got a man who's fallen down the stairs, is face first in the filth of the floor, blood coming down the side of his cheek as men come out of the bathroom trying to help him up. This is definitely, like, it starts out super dark, you know, and if, if, you know, we're jumping to the end, then you know it ends up, like, super bright religious at the end. It's, It's definitely this... This upward hill, I would say, through the whole story. Definitely a redemption story. I love the visuals here. It it, it feels that very gothic, uh, dark, not evil per se, but just gloomy and ominous. And you're just like, okay, this has got to get better, right? We're starting at the bottom and moving up, which is very unusual for, you know, a lot of stories. A lot of plot devices start you kind of, you know, midway, then they drop and then you get redemption, drop again and then end on the high note. Of course, you go through those peaks and valleys. It's almost kind of refreshing. And I know it's a big surprise. Crypto is thinking that, you know, the bad stuff is refreshing to be at the beginning of a story. But I do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I find it interesting that you say it's a redemption story. We're going to have to parse out what that means with you here. Because interestingly enough, there's there's a big wealth of information about James Joyce's life when you read his uh, diary comes from his letters, right? And he'd write to his brother Stanislaus all the time. And one of the things that Stanislaus wrote about is that he kind of said that you could view this story as almost kind of like a mock, a humorous, a version of the Divine Comedy, right? Where the Divine Comedy had started out in the Inferno. Then you move into Purgatorio where you're burning off your sins to ultimately end up in Paradise, Paradiso at the end. And you kind of have those three parts to this story as well. I can see that very much. This is a religious story with undertones, I guess, of alcoholism. But the forefront, I think, that Joyce was putting forth, in my opinion, is religion, religion, religion. And it's kind of hard, though. It's like sometimes it feels like he doesn't know which side to pick. So I'd like to get mm. your take on that. Do you uh, 
do you think he highlights anything about inconsistencies when you say that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of perspective of how was religion being dealt with in Dublin during his life. And I think we need to dive into that alcoholism too, right? Because you're like, okay, is this going to be like yes. counterparts where you you are the character a lot of times when you're walking through these. But this is this is the most omniscient and experimental besides the dead maybe that that Dubliners gets. We you know, if if counterparts was more about maturity in the mature section of this book, we are firmly at the end of public life. And, mm -hmm. you know, we don't spend a ton of life in Mr. Kernan, right? Like we're not recreating counterparts as the alcoholic story. I think in this story, instead, we have the reverse picture where we spend just as much time in other people's heads in terms of Mr. Power, in terms of uh, Mr. McCoy, in terms of his wife, judging him. So in the same way that mm. this is the, fin the finality of public life, so too do we see the finality of how public life judges the individual's choices. And I'm just going to throw it out there as well. You use the word omniscient, right? That we're going through all these people's heads and having all these different perspectives and views. And it's a heavy religious tone. Religion, usually referring to God or a God, usually have some type of omniscient power to know mm. all of all time, mm. of all beings. Okay. I don't know. Okay, okay, okay. I like it. Let's keep going with it. So uh, people around the bar are just like, you know, it's a scene, right? Whenever someone falls down, people want to see what's going on. Uh, nobody knows what's going on. Manager's kind of worried. So instead of calling the hospital, he calls the police. <laughs> get, Makes sense. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Constable Who cares about comes. his well-being? We want to make sure there's no fights breaking out. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah. I, okay. Let's be honest. He's a good proprietor, right? <laughs> yeah. So. It's, so the constable gets there, takes out his notebook. Who are you? Isn't getting answers. This this is what I found hilarious is that they give the man some brandy and <laughs> wakes right up <laughs> like like that's the medicine that just gets him immediately like, oh, hey, well, I, I, I fall asleep. <laughs> Have you ever in your life known the hair of the dog to be more brandy i mean normally it's you know a bloody mary but woo. i uh, i gotta say that the hair of the dog never worked for me well you're no mr kernan then <laughs> <laughs> well let's start here who is mr kernan right do, do you think he's an alcoholic i hate that term and it's so subjective of well, what is an alcoholic? Is it because mm -hmm. you think you're an alcoholic or your friends think you're an alcoholic? How many drinks does it have to be? Does it affect your life? Does it affect your social life? I mean, yeah, this guy is laying down, pissed drunk, bleeding, can't make coherent thoughts and tell people who he is, and he needs more alcohol to become coherent. I mean, I guess he is the epitome definition of an alcoholic, alcoholism, whatever. Yeah. Well, I think you get some more information from the wife where she's like, oh, well, he's been drunk since Friday. And, oh, you know, Mr. <laughs> Power, you're so nice. Usually all of his friends that help him out when he does this want money, implying that he does it before. So, you know, it, like you said, it could be hard to throw around the big A word, but clearly, you know, it is interfering with some type of personal life when your friends are trying to do some type of an intervention. Agreed. Obviously, he has more issues than I think just alcoholism, but that's what he's turning to to try to, quote, I, I guess, uh, quiet his brain, for lack of better terms, mm -hmm. or what maybe would be acceptable for his time period. Now, with that said, 
there is some nuance here because you'll notice that, you know, in a bar, alcohol is a, a way to loosen the tongue, right? You know, when we have this intervention in the next scene, you've got the missus bringing out four stouts. Uh, I think, I think, well, enough stouts for everyone except him, right? And then mm, even when Mr. Fogarty comes obvious. over, right, he brings over whiskey, a special glass or bottle of whiskey, right? Like there's, there's something to be said about how, well, alcohol is also, you know, like, oh, the devil's brew. It's this is a downfall to his life. You can see how it also is a social thing. It is a positive mm-hmm. thing in some ways. And arguably, brandy is distilled wine. You have the religious discussion here about wine, the, the blood of Christ basically healing him. There's there's a more nuanced picture to alcohol, I would say, in this than there was in counterparts, at least. You also think about it, too, is these people are all enabling him as well. I know that maybe we want to put a lot of emphasis on his alcoholism or his problem or that Mr. Kernan is the bad guy of the story, quote. But these people are enabling him if if he wasn't given these things or, you know, wasn't helped out, quote, by his friends or again, I don't want to place any blame on the wife because I think she's about the only good person in the story. Uh then it probably wouldn't come to the point that it has. Hmm, interesting, interesting. I want to talk about Miss Kernan. Uh, let's let's start with Mr. Power though, just because he show he's the one that shows up at the bar, if you remember, and he takes uh, yeah, he's the buddy, Mr. Kernan, home to Mrs. Yeah. Kernan, right? So, Mr. Power, tell me about him. He's the the young guy. I, I feel like that represents the the new age. Uh, or he's the one that represents the the money and quote power that's rising up in in Dublin at the time, and that mm-hmm. he's trying to help the old uh, make it home, help the old make it through this time period is kind of how I got Mister Power. Do you find any meaning or humor in his name? Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like Joyce wasn't pulling any punches. She's like, "Yep, this guy is Mister Power." <laughs> like, <laughs> all right, we're just we're throwing it out there. No yeah. skirting around this. Yeah, and you you got you got it right on the head there. He was described as a much younger man. Was employed in the I- uh, Royal Irish Constabulary Office in Dublin Castle. Which, for those that have been following along at this point, know that Dublin Castle, seat of power by England, uh, the that whole division is run by English power separate from the police force. So uh, clearly representing kind of English power and uh, selling out to it, I guess, in a sense, too. But he was also a man, if you'll notice, uh, cared more about how he was perceived than, than who he was, right? He's almost kind of got like that politician-y feel of, 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 of giving off on a certain uh, appearance being more important than being, if you will. Like there's these quotes in here. It says, he had never been seen in the city without a silk hat of some decency and a pair of gaiters. <laughs> Do you think that it is coincidence or Joyce put them together so perfectly that they're yin and yang of Kernan and Power? are kind of the opposite, where Kernan seems to, he's got to the point in his life, he just does not care what other people think about him. He can get sloppy junk, he doesn't care. And Powers, who, that's the most important thing to him. Is what people think of him. Oh, okay. Uh, I hadn't thought about the the public life reflection, right? That's kind of what you're bringing up. That's interesting. Um, 
you know, let's let's think about that. So he he gets brought home to Mrs. Kiernan. And does Mr. Kiernan care what Mrs. Kiernan says? Does he care what his friends say? You know, he doesn't seem to be too caught up in his own personal, you know, view to that point. And Mrs. Kiernan, okay, who is she? Because, you know, she's described as an active, practical woman of middle age. (laughs) And a very religious woman, yes? Well, everybody's more religious compared to Mr. Kiernan, right? Because he was born (laughs) Protestant, converted to Catholic, (laughs) and and he hasn't been back since. So he's clearly, uh, I I would argue he almost, you know, when we talk about the three B's of religion, of belonging, behavior, and belief, he seems heavily more skewed towards the belonging side. I mean, a lot of Irish Catholics, Protestants were, who, where you belonged mattered. And there's even an element of nepotism there. Like uh, when, when I was over in Ireland here recently, I went and toured the uh, Cork City Jail. And there's even talks about how they made sure that it was passed down in terms of who ran the prison to someone who is Catholic. Like they didn't want a Protestant or anyone else running it. It had to be a Catholic uh, person in charge of the jail. So there's an element of belonging that's important, I think, to a lot of Irish religion. Do you think that Mr. Kerna's problem is that he's lost his belief or he never had his belief to begin with? Because he seems to struggle with that. Uh, we see that, you know, of him refusing to light the candle, for example, that he he does belong in, in a roundabout way. I mean, they all sit around and BS about religion, even though it's so horrible and cringeworthy of how they get everything wrong. And obviously Joyce is kind of poking fun at, you know, common people's understanding of a religion. And I think it's brilliant, but I feel like there was, we're, we don't have all the information and that we're unjustly uh, judging Mr. Kernan. And I know I'm kind of coming to his defense a lot, but I, I think that I got the feel that this is the point is that he has this tragedy in his past that he's lost his belief. And where do you go from there when you don't have that anymore, when you're at your middle age kind of, and you're trying to figure out where does the rest of my life go when it maybe hasn't worked out exactly how you feel it should have. Well, I defend away, my friend. Do you think (laughs) that a lot of these people have conflict with how they believe? Uh, Is that, is that coming from us? Are we feeling that they need to behave a certain way? Right, because even you said Miss Kiernan was the most religious, but the narrative even said that she would believe in the Holy Ghost if pressed. That religion was a habit to her. There, there's a lot of words around belonging and habit. Mm-hmm. And you know, you brought up the point about the candles at the end. Well, if 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 behavior mattered so much to them, then. Why is Mr. Kiernan bending so much of behavior to what fits his comfort level? You know what I mean? Like he's not willing to let go of his certain expectations of what behavior or right behavior is, which is going to be a problem for him when it comes to certain views and certain expectations for religion. Right. I guess that kind of brings up the point of like when they're discussing the Jesuits, right? And I feel like Mr. Kiernan was defending them. And that he doesn't know, and it comes back to your idea of belonging, right? Of He doesn't know where he fits in. Uh, he just knows that it's not in this box that he's supposed to be that he feels like everybody else is in. Well, 100%. They're bringing up the belonging as a weapon there. They're like trying to like 
glorify the Jesuits, right? Like they're the only branch that never reformed and they bring up Pope 13 and, and, you know, some of those, so some of them like kind of like were a little bit strange and I looked it up and I'm like, okay, well you mentioned earlier that they were kind of waffling back and forth. Well, there's a couple of inconsistencies in their stories and how they interpret certain things. And it, it, you're like, okay, is that a mistake? And I think with how many there are and how knowledgeable Joyce is, especially when it comes to Catholicism, it's probably not a mistake, right? These are probably right. meant to be these characters are making mistakes. Like Joyce knows the answer, so he's specifically implanting the characters to misrepresent religion. And are they doing that to form their own needs? Or are they doing it because they're not actually believing and behaving the way that they're supposed to? They're more worried about the belonging of the church than the actual rituals and such. Like, oh, I'm not going to do the candle. Not going to do the candle. <laughs> I also think it's this idea of peer pressure, uh, even as far back as then, is that Dubliners are influencing one another and that sometimes this misinformation as far back as 100 years ago is going to be moving around society and changing people's views and how Ireland is going to move for move forward together as a people. And I think Joyce is seeing that, you know, firsthand in Dublin. So we talked a little bit about Mr. Power. Uh, how do I phrase this? That the visualizations are more important than the internal. Like or things are not always as they seem, I guess, might be another way of phrasing that. Do you oh, yeah. feel the way that Mr. Kiernan tries to hide? Like if, if, if the beginning is the fall, the sin, the, the lecherousness that we're trying to cover up, and he's like, well, I can't really exactly remember who I was with. Oh, it was Mr. Hartford. Oh, you know, that usurious lending man who works for <laughs> Mr. Goldberg, right? <laughs> Laying it on a little thick there. And he wants to kind of like quickly change the subject, right? He doesn't want to get too deep into what happened because I think he's trying to cover it up and present a different appearance in the same way that, you know, when they were trying to do some of this intervention stuff, if you recall, Mr. Power was like, well, all's well's ends well. Like he, he would just end it with one of these sayings as soon as things started to get uncomfortable, almost like we don't want to get too deep under the surface. Let's just stick to, you know, what looks nice and pretty on the, on top. Yeah. There's definitely a tonal shift towards the end of the story, which obviously is by design, like you said, because the beginning has such a, a, a dark, you know, tone. And then that softer tone shift at the end where, you know, everything's hunky dory. You know, we all made it to the end, you know, to the the, the chocolate factory, Charlie. Um, everybody's OK. So, yeah, it, it does feel that they're trying to put this brighter spin on religion. And I don't know, I feel like Joyce was starting to poke even more fun at the issues that religion is playing in Dublin. I would 100% say that Joyce was poking at it because, you know, Joyce had a lot of the young Goodman Brown approach to, I think, religion in Dublin, where people presented, oh, I'm a good practice, you know, Catholic, Protestant, evangelical, religious individual. But then you have the sin, you have the failure. And, you know, everybody spoke. I mean, we know that man's going to fail. Like there's no one that lives a perfect life, according to the Bible. But at the same time, I think Joyce found a lot of repulsion in the way that people would claim it, but but not actually behave or believe. Right. Like you have, you have tons of that throughout this whole story about how people will claim to be something they're not. 
And as a result, they fail to actually improve their situation because they're more worried about appearances than than actuality sometimes. And we get to that idea at the end of appearances. The end of the story is, to me, comical. And maybe it wasn't supposed to be funny, but then you have it being preached as a businessman. And I felt like an accountant just fell into the story and was like, yep, <laughs> JC was the best accountant ever, and he tallies the souls. And I'm just like, wait, what? And it just it feels so <laughs> jovial compared to how, like, real and, and in the murk the whole story felt with this alcoholism and this belonging and this belief and this, you know, real life that m- you see Mr. Kernan struggling with his faith and his friends and his family and now suddenly this guy is cracking jokes about Jesus and counting the soul tallies. I'm just like, whoa, Joyce, you really pulled the rug underneath me at the end here. And it's a brilliant move because it sticks with you. Yeah. So Father Purden, do you know where we made a reference to it? I think very briefly in Two Gallants, I think I mentioned this. Do you do you know where Purden Street or what's on Purden Street? A really, really old church. (laughs) That, my friend, is the red light district in Dublin. Oh, okay. So I'm very wrong. My bad. (laughs) So so naming the priest after (laughs) that street uh, would definitely have been very clear as to what Joyce was doing here. Oh, I love it. I'm glad you taught me that. And the way that the priest is just is is to your point, like, hey, businessman to businessman, right? Like there's this one quote he said, he told his hearers that he was there that evening for no terrifying, no extravagant purpose, but as a man of the world speaking to his fellow men. He came to speak to businessmen, and he would mm-hmm. speak to them in a business like way. If he might use the metaphor, he said he was their spiritual accountant, and he wished each and every one of them to his hearers to open his books, the books of his spiritual life, and see if they are tallied accurately with conscious. So... (laughs) I just found that hilarious. I just found it so comical because... And I get it. You know, I, I went to a Catholic school. I get that I had fathers, uh, priests who were my teachers for science and accounting and everything else. But it just to give this as a sermon just seems so disingenuine from a religious tone, I feel like. And it is comical. And I think it's genius by Joyce. I think when when especially when you look at the sermon that he delivers here, where he talks about men being fallible, that, you know, everybody's going to have struggles with life. And regardless of the humor and the tongue-in-cheek aspect, I I think, you know, reconciling where you are needing to improve is an important part about how you get out of the mire and the paralysis that I think a lot of Dubliners were experiencing, right? So by continuing to focus on the appearance of being the good person and the appearance of being, you know, this great religious person, but you're constantly failing and uh, not doing a good job of whether you believe in religion or whether you just believe in do right, right? Or the golden rule or, or Confucianism, whatever you want to believe in. That if you constantly focus on the appearance as opposed to the being, that that's what causes, I think, some people's inability to move forward. And do you think the story was strategically placed because at certain times of life, you will probably have that feeling more? 
Well, if we look at the structure of Dubliners as a whole, it's 14 total stories plus the coda, which is the dead, right? So this is the end of all the stories, the end of the the collection kind of with the exception of the dead and the end of public life, right? So if in the beginning, if you remember, it was the sisters, which is the little boy, right? Who's dealing with life, learning about religion, learning about the structures being put onto him with Mr. Cotter and, and all that other stuff. Well, now we're at the end of life. And at the end of life is when you're going to be, I think, looking back on your life, both as a person consciously, but also if you believe in like that total recall of your life flashing before your life at the end of your life, which I, I do, uh, I think that you're you're going to be forced to reckon with how did I live, and there's nothing you can do other than judge yourself. And maybe if you believe in religion, you know God's going to judge you as well. If you don't, I still think you're going to judge yourself. And that's where we end the story with judging our wrongs and our accounting accounting in life is something that we're going to have to reconcile no matter what. I think that's a deep contemplation, right? Of all of your rights and wrongs. And again, we kind of talked about this. What does it mean of good or right or alcoholism? Is Mr. Kernan a bad guy because he's making poor choices? Is he neglecting his family? Is he neglecting his duty as a father? Is he neglecting his duty as a husband? Is he neglecting his duty as a friend, uh, as a, quote, good Catholic boy? Uh, I mean, you could make an argument, yes, that he is. Does that mean that he's going to hell? Does that mean that he is judging himself harshly, too harshly, and that's why he's drinking? I think that he's a very complex character, and I think this story is probably relatable to a lot of us at different points in our life. We're going to contemplate the hard choices, the, quote, easy choices that we've had to make. And uh, I, I just love how Joyce has given us this little tiny slice of life to view into Dubliners, but also to view into ourselves as well. If you ain't struggling, you ain't living. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. I I reward and cherish the time spent diving into this. We probably have like five and a half, six hours of content on this. And if you guys have followed along and listened to some of these speeches, awesome. I'm so glad that you did. Uh, feel free to, if you don't know what to say, leave a little, you know, I don't know, like an angel icon. Is that appropriate for the story called Grace? <laughs> <laughs> no, leave some type of icon. Little crying emoji being our penultimate episode on this because I'm going to cry on the next one because I want this to be one of those instances where I can unknow what I know so I can enjoy the journey again because it's been truly eye-opening. All right, guys. My name is Benuna. Peace. Peace. <laughs>